Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Hello, this is Neil Garfield, and this is Thursday, June 1st, 2017. The other five months are gone already. Settlements and modifications that are settlements. And the big question is how <clears throat> how do we reconcile settling with a party who you already know doesn't have a place at the table? And why do all settlements come with a confidentiality agreement? Probably to stop people like me from broadcasting what happened. Good afternoon. <clears throat> to those in the Western time zones and without a frog in their voice, and good evening to those in the East. Follow the instructions you received when you called in in order to show my studio board that you're waiting with a question. The money trail, the paper trail, what's the difference? And more importantly, what do you do about it? Lots of times it comes down to settlement of a case or modification of a loan or both. Attorney Charles Marshall joins me tonight to discuss the elements of settlement, which frequently involve a formal modification of the alleged loan with a party who probably has no right to approve it. The lawyers across the country frequently recommend accepting a settlement like cash for keys or modification or other settlements that may only compound title problems, at least theoretically. I'm one of those lawyers, and Charles is another. Why do I recommend that to people? Why does Charles and and lawyers across the country? The answer lies in probabilities. If my assessment of the case, the judge, the evidence, is that the homeowner will lose at trial, not because he should, but because he will, then I will often recommend that the case be settled or the so-called loan modified into a real loan with a party who never loaned the money nor purchased any loan, least of all the loan subject to the foreclosure. I do that based upon the probabilities that state legislatures are already stepping up to the title problems, title companies are stepping up to it with guarantees of title, and federal legislation is already taking shape to make a correction or hit the reset button like Florida did with the Murphy Act in the 1930s when title was scrambled better than my eggs in the morning. 
if they <clears throat> if they don't, then everybody will have title problems, and the banks want to paper over the false documentation with new documents that declare that the illusion of the loan is real. As Charles Marshall will tell you, the homeowner's analysis is based upon probabilities, personal decisions, and money. I will tell you that the offers of settlement or modification are a direct reflection of the perceived probabilities by people who are quite distant from any of the direct people in litigation, including the lawyers. The perceived probabilities that would result if the homeowner won. And that decision is not based upon the case at hand, but rather it is based upon the perceived effect on thousands of other cases that are coming up for trial and review. The more credible your threat that you will win and that your case will serve as a model for hundreds of other homeowners to also win, the better the offer of settlement or modification. The unfortunate feature of our system of jurisprudence is that you basically need a lawyer or else you'll be chewed up by your lack of knowledge of civil procedure and local rules. And concurrent with that <clears throat> is the need to pay for litigation. People don't want to pay. <clears throat> They've already been screwed. But if they want to litigate their case in our system and they want to do it with a lawyer, it's going to take tens of thousands of dollars because the banks and servicers never give up early. Most lawyers use some sort of combination of retainer fee, monthly fee, contingency fee, or bonus. But when the money runs out, the homeowner has no real choice but to accept the latest offer on the table. It's a simple game of attrition, and it works for the banks and the services. So that brings us to tonight. <clears throat> Modification, settlement, and if we have some time, lawsuits based upon false representations before, during, and after the modification process, which is now bearing the moniker Modification Broad. I'm broadcasting tonight from Duval County, brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm. And this show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners like you. Thank you. And for those of you who are not yet contributors, please hit the donate button on the blog or call 202-838-NEIL, N-E-I-L, 6345, which is our main number but not the number to this show, and pledge whatever you think you can afford. If my work has had value for you, if this show has had value for you, if the blog has had value for you, then please make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. Charles Marshall, attorney at law in the great state of California, welcome to the Neil Garfield Show. Always appreciate being with you, Neil. So, Charles. 
let's pretend that we're teaching nine-year-olds with crayons because most lawyers and virtually all homeowners have many ideas in their mind that create error in the context of the great era of foreclosure. That was error, E-R-R-O-L, versus era, E-R-A. What is the difference between a cash settlement and a modification of one of these nefarious loans? Well, I think the critical difference has to do with the importance of people's homes. I mean, most of these cases involve, and by the way, this is true whether you're in a judicial foreclosure state where the servicer or the pretender lender is suing you, or you're in a non-judicial foreclosure state like California, where typically you're the one suing the servicer or the pretender lender. This situation, even if it's an investment property, but usually it's your home, but even if it's an investment property, that's a really important property for the vast majority of people who have those investment properties. And again, for most people, it's their home. So in either of those scenarios, this is not something where, you know, twenty or $30,000 or, or, or some other kind of cash settlement, sometimes even in the six-figure range, will kind of assuage your concerns and even more importantly, take care of where you're going to live and, you know, what you're – what your other property uh, situation is going to be, whether it's a vacation rental or a rental full, full time for most people, they want those properties to be with them and at their disposal and for their use for years to come, sometimes decades to come. So what that means in the real, real world is a lot of these settlements do take the form of some kind of a loan workout Oftentimes, that will be through a traditional loan modification review process. Sometimes, particularly where you can get litigation going that is putting the the defendants on the defensive, and sometimes even without actually bringing suit, but usually it requires bringing suit, or in the judicial foreclosure state, it would require you really putting up such a significant defense that the other side decides it's better just to settle on some kind of a loan workout. Bottom line, those loan workouts can take the form of a conventional loan mod, which if, if that ends up being a specialized government program mod, that can actually turn out to be a good deal in some cases. Um, the other way that that might work uh, to, to a lot of uh, homeowners or borrowers advantage would be where you negotiate, your attorney negotiates with the other side, uh, everything from the interest rate to the term of years, 40-year loans are quite common now. And particularly for those who are older, let's say over 40 already, a 40-year loan can be a pretty good settlement solution because that means years later, you'll likely be able to refi and it also will lower your payments. And even if you end up with some arrearages in a balloon payment, that balloon payment will not be due for many decades in, in, in a number of cases, again, allowing you the opportunity to refinance. So 
it is critical when you're looking at these types of cases to see that because of the importance of homes to the litigants, you're looking for more midterm and long-term solutions. Sometimes you can have cash as a part of, of the settlement as well, particularly if the property has gone to sale and particularly if you've been removed from the property by an unlawful detainer process. But for those who are still in their property, and I think that's still the great majority of cases in this area, uh, it's very important to have options. And those options usually will involve trying to stay in the property with some kind of a loan work at. So what do you consider – well, let's talk about, first of all, the, that part of the settlement process that I hate the most, which is the confidentiality agreement, um, and the either implied or direct release. Uh, in all cases where uh, the homeowner achieved a result that was let's just say outsized uh, uh, in comparison to the usual cash for keys or modification or whatever. I'm talking about where there's uh, six figures or more paid uh, uh, for damages and where uh, sometimes as much as 90% is knocked off the principal of the loan in order to get the party to... Uh, uh, cover up the illegal loan with what it would be legal paper once they sign the modification. In all cases where that has occurred, or where they even where they backed off and said, you know, you can just have the house, there has been a confidentiality agreement that prevents the homeowner and all representatives of the homeowner from giving any more information than I just did. So, uh, uh, of course, that's part of the problem uh, because the word doesn't get out to homeowners that such settlements are possible. Um, and the the other part of of what I detest about the modifications. Uh, is either the direct language of general release uh, or the implied release uh, uh, that's that's in that agreement. Um, I uh, I find it uh, uh, disturbing uh, that the these cases end up. Uh, with a release of behavior that would ordinarily send common folk like you and I to jail. Um, wh what have you experienced in the in the realm of confidentiality agreements? Oh, in my experience, it's it's invariable when there is an institutional attorney group and an institutional defendant on the other side. And that's just the vast majority of the time. 
again, whether we're talking about uh, judicial foreclosure in state, states like Florida or New York or non-judicial foreclosure in states like Arizona or California, uh, what, wherever the venue, so to speak, wherever the litigation is taking place, wherever the subject property is, it's overwhelmingly the case that you're dealing with hardcore institutional people on the other side, often very large corporations that then hire national law firms with some big city area near you being the place where they hire the specific attorney group to litigate, again, whether they're suing you as the borrower or whether they're defending against a plaintiff's lawsuit in California. Regardless, it's it's just almost mathematically predictable that you're going to get a demand to have that type of confidentiality agreement and general release. And I think a lot of that is driven by hiding the the exact exposure, Neil, that you were mentioning they want to avoid getting out, uh, which if the facts were really known in some of these cases and could be widely talked about, publicized in various media, media then the defendants in these case, cases or the plaintiffs, when the institutional people are plaintiffs, they would rightly be concerned about, about damage control, about about public relations. And they use, I think, the general principles of law to to push these terms. And it's it's it, it it's a make or break type of uh situation. It's it's extremely I mean I don't want to use the word impossible, but I don't see an institutional player agreeing to settle these cases without such a confidentiality cover. And it is very typical when institutional players are in lawsuits for them to use that cover. It doesn't matter whether the suit is about about widgets and you're just going to be talking about that sort of cash settlement you were mentioning before, or where it's a complicated uh, place, it's a complicated item like a house, like a property. And, of course, in that case, injunctive relief or declaratory relief. And in a sense, a loan modification is both. It's got declared terms, and it acts as an injunction in the sense that it creates a new a new legal contract, basically, that both parties need to abide by. And so... There's no question that it, it, it's, I think it's a form of institutional abuse that borrowers have to, to sign off on these deals, but it is the only way to get a deal done in the vast majority of cases. And I think it's important for borrowers ultimately to, to accept what they have to accept and move on. They should still be disgruntled about it, but some things have to be accepted. Well, that's true. I mean, you know, you walk away from any litigation case, uh, the myth is that somebody's going to be happy and somebody's going to be unhappy, but the truth is neither one of them are happy. Um, but Which I is true the, with litigants in general, yes. That's the nature of the lawsuit process. Exactly, exactly. But when your house is um, on the line, literally, even if it's a rental property, 
you've got to do what you've got to do to try to preserve your situation. Well, I think that's coercion. That's where I was going with it. And I'm investigating whether or not there's an actual cause of action uh, based on that coercion uh, in the sense that it violates uh, the Truth in Lending Act uh, and uh, RESPA. But um, because what you've got is a thief that basically comes to you, pins you against the wall, and says, sign this that says you meant to give me the money anyway. And I agree. I mean, I, great overreaching that's going on. I think the key to that kind of lawsuit or causes of action within a lawsuit based on more conventional causes of action in a, in a foreclosure context I think the key is going to be having enough having enough heft and having enough prospect of going to trial on the more baseline causes of action. Then bringing that in, you can really increase your, your leverage. And, it, and, and there is a righteousness about that that borrowers should be able to avail themselves of. The issue, though, is unless – a borrower can get traction on the underlying base causes of action, I think that type of cause of action is going to be difficult to keep afloat in a legal case. The one yeah. the one I know. The one that I have, the one thought that I have is not contrary to that, but it's sort of a more nuanced thought about how that might operate is where you use class action lawsuits, possibly joinder lawsuits to, to really bring major attention related to a specific service or a lender. And then maybe you can get, you can get enough traction and enough attention of the court so that the focus won't be, well, what about your underlying causes of action? Or even if you don't have the underlying causes of action, if the case is brought as a joinder or a class action, I believe there'd be more prospects for a judge entertaining it and letting it go to trial so that it can actually be properly vetted in the legal arena. Right, right. And the, the other problem I, I have with, with the confidentiality thing um, is that I'm frequently asked, especially in relation to uh, our AMGAR program where we make an offer to uh, pay off the whole thing. Um, I'm frequently asked, you know, uh, has this worked? And I would tell people, yeah, so far 16 times. And uh, then they ask for the name of a case that they could look at where it worked. And I can't tell them. Because if I do, because the homeowner of the involved. Because agreement, precisely. Right. So it's, you know, the, the, a number of people have lost out on opportunities that I advised them were there, but I couldn't cite them to specific cases where it had worked because in each case where it had worked, there was a confidentiality agreement. So, so 
let's talk a little bit. I think you touched on it already. Uh, the personal side of this. Um, I, you know, in fact, I had a couple of conversations today about settlement uh, uh, conversations with homeowners, and the 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 personal side of it is that people have a life besides this lawsuit, and being in a lawsuit is a source of incredible stress to the lawyers even, but especially to the litigants, uh, except for in these cases, the banks and services are just playing a, uh, a slot machine and it doesn't make much difference whether a specific case is won or lost. But for right. a homeowner, I mean, it, it might be like a chess game to them, but that's as much as they're going to to feel an investment in any particular case. Yeah, exactly. It just doesn't matter to them, and you know, a lawyer might lose a job because he lost a case, but other than that, there's nobody on the other side that has a real problem. Uh, uh, they're just playing the numbers game. So, um, my my point is that I, I've advised many people before and during litigation that everybody has a life, everybody has a personal uh, agenda that they want to accomplish with their life, and that they should think carefully about whether or not they want to cont they want to start or continue in litigation which might last with appeals for for years and whether in the end they'll consider it worth it and of course I the answer I usually get at first is you know I'm just so damn mad at the banks I you know I'll do anything to get back at them and then comes the reality that, um, uh, A, of course, they may not win, um, although the closer you actually get to trial, the more likely you are to get a, a good settlement. Um, and, and B, exactly. uh, they may not have the resources, either personally, their nerves, or health, or financially to to get to the uh to the goal line and you know i uh i bring this up because there is a common misconception uh amongst the homeowners who have been screwed by this whole securitization illusion that Lawyers are part of the system, and it's the system that owes them an, a way out. And they get mad when a lawyer asks for money. They get mad when a lawyer tells them, okay, you're right, but you're going to lose anyway. We just have to um, communicate as best we can what the true status is of the of the case now sometimes a case looks eminently winnable 
and probably at a glance should be decided absolutely in front of the homeowner. But when you get a judge who is going to uh, knock down everything that you that you file, like I had one judge uh, uh, in in Florida, uh, um, basically strike all of the affirmative defenses of the homeowner and struck virtually all of the requests for discovery. It was insane. And fortunately, I had the good sense to tell my client that it might be time to get a more local lawyer, which she did, and the case was dismissed shortly after. But right, the in a situation like that, the only way to get around a, a really, essentially um, disagreeable judge, to put it mildly, I mean trying to to essentially challenge the judge for cause, that type of thing is going to be very difficult. And it's not as if this is a situation where an interlocutory appeal would be available. So right, right for the for the remedies available which really aren't available in the middle of a lawsuit, there are situations like that where Sometimes, literally, the legal system will not be availing. Exactly. And, and um, uh, that's why, uh, well, there's two things to put out there to the public. One is anybody who guarantees you success or some minimum type of result as, as a sure thing is lying to you. Precise. Simple as that. The, uh, the the other issue here is that anyone, including lawyers, who fails to tell you the bad news as it starts coming up, like I said, in uh, I filed a motion to compel uh, uh, discovery. And the other side had filed a motion to strike all my affirmative defenses. And in a million years, I wouldn't have thought that, uh, that any judge would have granted that. Um, but he did. So I had to go back to the client and say, you're going to lose. And she said, well, I thought I had a good case. I said, you do. And yeah. that's yeah, part of the communication. The way I put that to clients is I will tell them, I kind of give them, and I use the word statistical because that's what it is. I mean, I know my cases. I know what has happened over the years. And I can tell a client, look, statistically, you, you could have this range of results. Statistically, you know, this is more likely to go in your favor, you know, given the constellation of, of facts and law in the case. It's absolutely the case that sometimes a judge, you know, through through their own personality, through their own bias, they're going to make a negative decision anyway. And no matter what the statistics are, that can happen in any case. And, yes, borrowers really need to be prepared to know that that can happen. 
but they also have to keep in mind the statistics that that kind of a kind of disaster scenario is unusual, but yes, it does sometimes happen. And I wanted to uh, bring up, I'm not sure how much you can talk about this because I know that you're involved in, uh, in a case, but it, uh, I'm disturbed by uh, tendency across the, the country uh, to treat uh, lawyers as, in essence, unlicensed individuals when it comes to modification or other things that would potentially end the foreclosure litigation. They, the rules uh, uh, make it more difficult for access to an attorney if you just want to hire a lawyer because you've received an offer of modification and you'd like the lawyer to look it over and advise you on it and all that. Um, I, I wasn't concerned about those rules before when they were focused on truly unlicensed individuals, but I am disturbed now because they're being applied to lawyers as well who are being told that you can't be part of a foreclosure rescue scheme. Um, or, or something like that, when in fact they're just providing legal advice on probably the most important legal decision that a homeowner is going to make as to litigation versus modification and, uh, and navigating through the legalities of even the modification agreements are thick and, and uh, contain wording that could throw off uh, uh, sometimes even a lawyer, much less uh, a homeowner. Um, you want to comment on that, or should I go on? No, I, I, I'd like to comment on that. I mean, California is ground zero for regulatory overreach, and frankly, I, I'm not sure that the the intent of the legislature overall was was ever uh, pro borrower per se. I mean, you you can you can look back at you know the various Senate bills that have been passed starting in 2009 and passed with with much pomp and 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 you know really pomposity on the part of the legislature and the the, the governor at the time. And yes, are there were there you know, kind of loan modification bills where particularly non-attorneys were engaging in large numbers of really minimalist loan modifications and not not really vetting the cases properly, not really shepherding them through properly. properly. Yes, there there was that, except the the legislature's solution to that then and in, and and, it, and simply ever since then has been to essentially restrict and continually harass attorneys themselves so that the ability of any individual attorney to simply legally address a homeowner situation is is really 
fraught with all kinds of uh, regulatory overreach, to use that term again. So, in effect, it's like any supply-demand situation. There are fewer attorneys really available uh, to help homeowners, and I think a lot of attorneys are legitimately concerned, not even overly concerned, but concerned that the the state bar and other regulatory authorities can and will come after them simply for helping homeowners with their situation. And, I mean, I have always done this, and I will continue to do this, because I I feel called to do it. And so I will continue to do it. And if I were going into this area anew, knowing all the regulatory scheme that's out there now, I think I, I, I would have a lot of pause. And I know a lot of attorneys do have pause about taking up these cases. And yet there's this great demand for these cases. I mean, other than criminal law and other than being subjected, you know, unfairly or not, to an accusation from government authority that you've committed a crime and you should go to jail. Other than that, being driven from your home is the most traumatic thing that could happen to to, to anyone. I mean, that's just objectively true. So for the state to overly interfere with the one relationship that could at least limit and ideally reverse that happening to homeowners unfairly, that happening even to, to people who have rental properties, taking their properties away without legitimacy when the proper lender has never really appeared in, in, uh, you know, in, in, in any, in, in, in any uh, documents. You look at all that, the government should be doing more to ease the relationship between the attorney and borrower, and instead they've created almost an oppositional situation and they've they've made the attorney um, almost have to practice a type of defensive medicine to use uh, to use that analogy from the medical field right uh, it's just the regulation is so out of control that it it does interfere with with the legal representation at this point you know I have a slightly different take as to the motivation behind that kind of legislation. I think it was pushed by the banks because if they weren't pushing it, it wouldn't have gone through. And I think it was pushed by the banks because the easier it is for a homeowner to find a servicer, uh, licensed or otherwise, the more data will be collected on the homeowner side that will force them into settlements and modifications because of the lack of proper documentation and uh, uh, the lack of a creditor to be identified. And I think that if the banks can use servicers that are of dubious authority uh, that that debtors ought to be able to use servicers uh, who have no dubious authority. Now, I'm not saying that those service companies that lied to the the consumers and guaranteed them this or that, that, that's a different thing. But that's already covered by law. And and lawyers uh, who, you know, uh, 
sign up clients because they're guaranteeing a result should be given the same treatment. But in most cases, my personal experience with many of these service companies is they were doing a whole lot more good than bad. Yes, there were people who were disappointed because they didn't quite get the result that they wanted or they didn't get any result. But lots of people did get modifications because of the tenacity of the people working in these servicing companies. And I think that the real reason that we have this legislation has nothing to do with protecting the consumer. It's like the Patriot Act had nothing to do with protecting uh, people. It was a cover for an enhanced surveillance. Um, what, what we have here is just another way that opposition has been stamped down uh, uh, and making it much less likely that the truth uh, will, will come out and, and much more difficult for any homeowner to actually get a fair result. I mean, I agree with everything you just said. Yeah, I agree with you. Every, every, I agree with everything you just said on this topic. And essentially, this is controlled opposition, and it's true. I think the servicers, you know, in league with, you know, the nominal securitized trust, other owners, quote unquote, lenders, they did essentially shepherd and support this legislation the same way that large corporations often support various regulatory schemes that are visited upon them because they've got the cost, they've got the money, they've got the regulatory team in their corporation to essentially amortize the cost of all that, whereas a smaller player doesn't have the ability to deal with that. And so what's ended up happening is there are far fewer people available to homeowners who could actually help them with their situation, whether they're attorneys or not. And they're directed by regulatory authority to go to various consumer agencies or to maybe go to a nonprofit who's doing some kind of a loan workout uh, business of some kind. And then they're not getting any results. So in, in, in effect, they end up at the, at the mercy of the servicers and, and the lenders have been able to play this legislation to reduce the power of the borrower and the power of the borrower's advocate. It's, it's that simple. They haven't eliminated the power because I'm still there. I'm still here. There are people here fighting for this. But it's the power on our side has definitely been reduced by all of this regulation. And the regulation was essentially shepherded, if not, not outright shepherded, if not outright sponsored by the other side. Yeah, I completely agree with that, and in certain cases, I know who the sponsors were in certain states. Um, uh, and right. That's why I, I basically want to encourage people to find whatever service they can that will help them, because in the end, I think it's persistence uh, that that wins. So, Charles Marshall, thank you for visiting with us again. And to all, 
Thank you for joining me tonight. I will see you next week. Thank you, Neil. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lies Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.